Welcome to First Formation, spiritual exercise for Christian soldiers looking to get the fuck up and pray. Join Pew Pew HQ every weekday morning to hear the good news through grunts and with grunts in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one church forever and ever. Fall in. Good morning and welcome to the ninth day of 12 Saints, 12 Days, my blog series from All Saints to Veterans Day. Uh, This morning we're talking about Julius the Sailor, uh, or more simply just the Centurion. Um, And that is because in, at the time, at the first century, um, the Roman Navy was really just an extension, at least um, linguistically, it was just an extension of its army. Uh, the commander of a ship was called a centurion. Uh, the boat was, uh, you know, organized into a century, and there were there were other roles, and they definitely were seafarers. Um, but in name, there was no difference. Um, in the case of Julius in Acts twenty-seven, um, uh, even if he is a sailor, he's not. In, in Acts 27, operating in a naval capacity. And we know that because the the ship that they're, or the ship, at least two ships, maybe more, um, there is, at least in the most important case, when, right before the shipwreck, um, there's an owner and there is a captain, and neither of them are Julius. Julius is probably a, a member of a specialized unit, um, in the very beginning of Acts 27, he's called a centurion of the Augustan cohort. But that's kind of misleading because it capitalizes Augustan, and we think of Augustus as you know the one of the or two of the four um, emperors in the Tetrarchy, which was in place at the time of the New Testament. So there are two Caesars, two Augusti, and the Augusti were highest ranking, one in the east, one in the west. Um, but in Latin, Augustus literally just means the object of worship. In Greek, um, the word was sebastos. And sebastos may be a reference to Julius being uh, a member of one of these units, Augustan units that was kind of um, bestowed with imperial favor and called Augustan cohorts, you know, either Praetorian guards or some other kind of, you know, favored unit. Um, but the other alternative is that he is Augustan in the sense that he was from Sebastos, which is a city. Um, we know it as Samaria, uh, which is both a region and a city. The ancient city of Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes of Israel. Um, at the time of the first century, actually, in 6 CE, uh, BCE, um, when Rome uh, came in and made uh, Herod's uh, kingdom a client state to Rome, Herod renamed Samaria Sebastos or Sebastia in honor of the Augustus. So the the Latin word for the city becomes Augusta, becomes Augusta, but in Greek you call it Sebastia, and it used to be called Samaria. So Julius is either uh, from a unit in the Sebast, which is also a region or the city of Sebastia, or he's some elite unit. Now, it's probably true that it's the, the latter. 
because Paul, earlier in Acts, has exercised his right as a citizen to plead his case before the emperor in Rome. Um, And so in response to that request, um, it's very likely that he is assigned some special unit uh, when he sails from Caesarea Maritima across the Mediterranean, which at the time was called, you know, a Roman lake because they had controlled the entire Mediterranean. There was no enemies. There might have been pirates, but, you know, it's essentially just making sure all the goods, you know, flowed smoothly and stuff like that. So it wasn't a navy in the sense of an armed force. Even if he was a sailor, um, these are soldiers on a probably commercial vessel or series of vessels, or even if they are trained, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember what the the Latin word was, but it's something like marinus or something like that, you know, marine, right? Um, but that actually isn't what mostly interests me in Acts 27. Um, Acts 27 has this, you know, the story of the shipwreck, and Paul is like, or Saul, is warning them, and they're not really listening, and they're freaking out. They're going to, like, kill the prisoners. But Paul says, no, 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 shut the fuck up and listen to me. Here's what we're going to do. You know, nobody has to worry for their lives. Uh, we're going to, um, you know, do all these things, and we're going to get the weight off and blah, blah, blah. And in verse 29, <clears throat> uh, 29? I can't remember. Um, or, yeah, I think it is 20, 27, 29, I think. Um, they... Uh, they kind of prepare the ship for what they're going to do. And then Paul, um, it says in Acts, uh, he takes bread and gives thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And that sounds really interesting because it sounds um, very close to what Jesus said in Luke 22 during what Christians call Monday, Thursday, and what Jews at the time would have called Passover. Um, and this is the meal that Jesus is, you know, is enacting in his own sacrifice. He is both the Passover goat, uh, which I, you know, I say more about in, in God is a Grunt in chapter three, I think, or two. Now I can't remember. Um, but he's Jesus is on Passover, acting as the Yom Kippur goat who takes away the sins of the world. He is combining these two holidays. He does the Yom Kippur thing by being killed um, and carried off into the wilderness and or carried off into the wilderness, taking away the sins of the world, but he's doing it on Passover. He's combining the two. Passover was a spring holiday. That was with the, the calves' blood on your door. If you have a horror show, if you don't have a horror show on your house, you're going to have a horror show in your house, as I say, and God is a grunt. And then Yom Kippur is the fall, second high holy day, and that involved two goats, one that was slaughtered, and then the blood of that slaughtered goat is then wiped all over another goat that then escapes into the wilderness called the scapegoat. And this second goat carries the sins away, sins of the people away. And so when John, in another gospel, and John the Baptist in particular, talks about, hey, look, it's... Uh, the Lamb of God who carries away the sins of the world. There's no lamb that does that. That's a goat from Yom Kippur. And what Jesus does in his passion, 
is he combines the Yom Kippur goat on Passover. So he's combining these two holidays. Then in Acts, it's very interesting because in verse 9, Acts 27, 9, we hear that the fast, which the NIV identifies as Yom Kippur, has just passed. The Day of Atonement has just passed. And here Paul does this thing that looks an awful lot like what Jesus did on Monday, Thursday, a.k.a. Passover. Um, and instead of, instead of doing it on Passover, he does the Passover meal, which for Christians is the Eucharist, on Yom Kippur. It's almost like two bookends where Saul's spur-of-the-moment open communion is a narrative extension of Jesus' long-awaited fulfillment of God's salvation through Israel. So Jesus, the, the author of Luke Acts, Luke and Acts are one work, uh, one prequel, one sequel, um, same author. Um, for Luke, I'm confident that he sees these two pieces and deliberately parallels them. I mean, it's hard to miss. In Luke, I'm reading from the NRSV, then Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. In Acts, after Saul had said this, he broke bread, he took bread, and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, he, he broke it and began to eat. Those two lines, even in the Greek, are so similar as to not be coincidental. Luke is making a point of taking what Jesus did and, like toast, flipping it over so the other side gets toasted as well. Jesus, on Monday, Thursday, Passover, he does this for his 12 apostles, right? All Jewish. And he is combining these two holidays, uh, kind of like concentrating them into one, which now Christians call, you know, Monday, Thursday, uh, and, and um, Good Friday, and, and Easter, right? The Holy Triduum. And then Saul, in Luke's next work, Saul takes that and then breaks it out, not just to Gentiles, but to unassuming Gentiles. The soldiers and Julius don't ask for this. They never confess Jesus as Lord. They never are baptized. And yet that doesn't stop Paul from performing the Eucharist with them um, in Acts 27, right before it ends, almost as if Luke is signaling the, the continued expansion from the gospel, his gospel, through the Acts of the Apostles to, you know, Acts 28 and the Great Commission or whatever. Um, and then I, I don't mention this in the blog for um, pewpew.substack.com, the, the 12 Saints, 12 Days blog, um, but Paul also uses this language himself um, in Corinthians, um, the... Um, the lang- I think it's 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27. Um, and Corinthians, I'm trying to think how late that was uh, written. Um, uh, but Luke was written after Paul's letters. So Paul has already written Corinthians when he talks about um uh you know that when when Paul himself writes about the 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 Eucharistic pattern right um 
when he talks about it in Corinthians, Luke probably knows because he has written, Paul has already written it, right? Uh, and so he takes this uh, in his gospel and he does something with it in uh, his book of Acts um, to signify the continued expansion of the good news from it, through Israel to the Gentiles and not even not necessarily even those who are like you know god fears like Cornelius but like unassuming people like Julius and the sailors and you know the crew who wouldn't have been soldiers themselves um and so Julius none of the people on the boat you know confessed Jesus or any of that but there's this really wonderful thing that's going on in Acts 27 that happens you know through unavoidably through the lens of military experience. You know, he's being taken to court in Rome. And here Paul is, um, you know, I I guess you could make the the case that uh, Paul hasn't died yet. And um, even though Paul has written Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, Acts has not been written, and we don't know if Paul has died yet. Um, and so it's this really, I don't know, it's this fascinating thing um, that we cannot separate from the military experience in Christian soldiers. Um, this Eucharistic meal, at least in terms of Luke-Acts, is just, you, you know, you cannot separate it from the Passion. Um, you can't deny that, you know, this is this sounds a lot like communion, like the Eucharist. That's actually the language, the word that's used, Eucharisteo. Um, in Luke 22 and Acts 27. Um, and so, again, Julius doesn't appear in God is a Grunt, but a lot of what um, what I'm you know, kind of discovering through researching for God is a Grunt you know, makes this connection between the emergence of our faith and traditions of our faith, uh, the separation between them and military experience is just... It's just impossible. You cannot do away with it. And Julius is one of these um, characters that represents that that symbiosis between faith and service, and how um, how our faith was born, um, as well as how it has developed over the last several centuries and, and millennia. Thank you for falling into First Formation where Pew Pew HQ shares morning prayers for the humble, hardy folk caught in the crosshairs of God and country. If you like what you've heard, you can participate in one of the three following ways. First, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash pewpewhq. You can contribute as little as a dollar a month, and you can cancel at any time if I ever piss you off. Second, you can become a co-host by recording a lectionary reading for a future episode. Instructions will be provided, and you don't have to be a grunt to collaborate with Pew Pew HQ in this or any way. Finally, you can also record and send prayer requests of a minute or less. Prayers can be included in the episode, read anonymously if you wish, or kept private for me to pray for off-air. So there you have it, three ways to participate in First Formation. I hope you'll continue to listen, even if I can't convince you to jump in. This has been Brother Logan Isaac, always faithful, Always family. Semper Familia.